We're studying the second letter of Paul to Timothy. We're in chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 8, 9, and 10. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 8 to 10. This is my gospel for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So he's writing this letter to young Timothy from his prison cell. It's the last letter he wrote. It's then uh, soon he's going to be with Jesus. Timothy is the pastor in Ephesus, what we call Turkey today, in the middle of the uh, west coast. And all the other churches have uh, abandoned Paul's teaching and the authority of Paul over them. And lots of pressure is being brought to bear on Timothy too. So Paul writes this letter to him. First thing I want you to see is how Paul suffered for the gospel. Now if I said to you what Paul says to Timothy in this letter, join with me in suffering for the gospel, join with me in suffering for the gospel, chapter 1 verse 8, then you would be totally perplexed. You wouldn't be perplexed if we were Syrian Christians today, if we were in a refugee camp, longing to get into Turkey, if we were from Iraq, if we were in parts of India and Pakistan, if we were in North Korea today, then um, suffering is the context in which Christians live their lives. It's normal for them. The invitation to become a Christian is an invitation to come and suffer for Jesus Christ. But by and large, we're, we're fat cats. A friend told me of a man who would uh, uh, join the army. And after six months he came home and they uh, asked him, well, what's it like being a Christian in the army? Oh, it's fine, he said. It's fine. I thought it would be uh, really hard being a consistent Christian in the army. Oh, he said, I, I haven't told them. Well, if you don't tell people that you were Christians, then you save yourself persecution and criticism, don't you? But that's no option for you. You can't sit on that fence. It's an ungainly place to be. You can't be a secret disciple for long because either the secrecy will kill the discipleship or the discipleship will kill the secrecy. Don't be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. Chapter 1, verse 8. I am not ashamed. Chapter 1, verse 12. Paul said, well, uh, is someone here ashamed that they have in church this morning? We sing a, sing, uh, sing a hymn. Jesus, and shall it ever be a mortal man ashamed of thee? Ashamed of Jesus, that dear friend on whom my hopes of heaven depend? Not when I blush be this my shame that I no more revere 
his name ashamed of Jesus? Yes, I may, when I've no guilt to wash away, no tears to wipe, no good to crave, no fears to quell, no soul to save. Maybe it's being ashamed of Jesus that is the reason that we're not suffering for the gospel. A vibrant Christian girl came to live in Aberystwyth. Her husband had been accepted to do a, a course here in international politics, and she came with him. She was full of life and animation for Jesus Christ. She had a big sticker here, and she went up with her husband to the university. She wasn't doing a course, but she accompanied him. And one day she worked her way down the line of students in the refectory uh, waiting with their trays to pick up a meal. She had a handful of trucks and she gave a tract and smiled and spoke a few words and moved on and moved on. And there was a boy from our congregation, a student, young student, new student, new Christian. And he was waiting, waiting for her to come nearer and nearer to him. And finally she came and she smiled at him and she offered him a tract. And he said to her, I'm a Christian. And he told me of the peace that flooded his heart when he confessed, he believed that Jesus was the Savior. But he now said it with his lips. And he never, never had any difficulty like that difficulty ever again in saying to people, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I I believe I'm a Christian. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. I've heard them called beautiful attitudes. You've heard that, I'm sure. And it ends with uh, two great Beatitudes, doesn't it? And they're both about suffering. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For so they persecuted the prophets which were before you. How faithful was Moses and how the people grumbled and rebelled at his teaching, almost killed him telling him it was better if they'd all stayed in Egypt and died there than to follow him into this wilderness. How faithful was Elijah and Jeremiah. How terribly they were treated. What a blessing Elijah and Moses have been to the world ever since. You know, in 10,000 pulpits, There are people who are reading words written by Moses and Elijah and Jeremiah and they are speaking the comfort and the strength and the gospel that those men knew. And people are being helped all over the world because of those suffering servants of the Lord. 
How blessed is the person who suffers for righteousness' sake. He's not made himself a martyr by being awkward or shouting at people or interrupting, but because he's a righteous man. How Paul suffered. He says here in our text, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. Verse 9. He had the painful humiliation of wearing fetters like a dangerous criminal. Remember how he ends the passage. I read it to you when he was preaching, first of all, in Damascus. And there was a stir because of him. This man who came here to arrest Christians has become a Christian. And the governor sent out men to arrest him. You remember the story so well. And they were going to throw him into prison. And you know how he escaped. They had a laundry basket. And he got into it and a rope. And there was a window in a house in the walls of Damascus. And they let him down. The greatest scholar of Gamaliel. The leader of the Pharisees. And there he is bouncing down a wall in in a basket. What humiliation he went through. He was a Roman citizen. He was innocent. He was being treated like a criminal. You see that word there? It's the same word that is used in Luke 23 concerning the two men that were crucified each side of our Lord Jesus. And you remember how um, one of them says, we deserve what we are getting, but this man, referring to Jesus, did nothing wrong. He was so heinous in his evil that he himself confessed he deserved as wretched and lingering a death as crucifixion. The standard uh, dictionary of uh, the Greek New Testament says that this word criminal is used to describe those who commit gross misdeeds and serious crimes. Paul, in prison, just like a violent man, just like a traitor, scum, who were tortured to death. You know, this was no open prison. Um, You know how uh, Acts ends so fascinatingly. The last two verses in Acts 28, they describe for us how the uh, Apostle Paul was at the arrival in in Rome. He says, uh, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Full stop. And that's how the book of Acts ends. He's there. He's got enormous freedom under house arrest. But anyone can come, no soldiers, checking at the door who's coming in. That was his first incarceration. And then you know uh, what happened then. uh, How uh, Nero set a light to Rome in his madness and in his evil. And then uh, a third of the city burned down. Lots of people were killed. And Nero then said it was the Christians who had done this. And they were arrested. And Paul was arrested. And they were burned alive. Uh, they were, women were thrown to wild animals, hungry wild animals, uh, to entertain a crowd in the wickedness of the Colosseum and so on. 
Paul moved from freedom to prison. That's the pattern so often in the Christian life. A godly ministry can't end with everyone slapping you on the back and singing for he's a jolly good fellow. It ends as it did with Jesus, with Paul, with John Bunyan, with Spurgeon. So um, here now, um, he is in prison. He's manacled to a legionnaire. A foul-smelling, foul-speaking soldier who's got eight hours shift chained to this man who only wants to talk to him about religion. Nothing could be less conducive to God-breathed writing. And yet, here is Paul, and, and, and he's writing this letter. One of the most lovely letters that's ever been written. And he wrote it under circumstances like that. You can see how you can get by when your roommate's got uh, a taste in music that's different from your own, when the man living upstairs is noisy. You can cope. You can pray. You can ask God to help you. You can put your fingers in your ears. You can be a good witness in a place like that. Then Paul tells us then, secondly, uh, how he survived. He says, God's word is not chained. He was chained, but God's word isn't chained. It's a wonderful phrase, the word of God. It's a first time in this letter of of Paul to Timothy that that phrase, the word of God, is, is found. It's the only place, really. Later on, there's the phrase, the word. And then there's uh, the word of truth. But uh, here, it's the word of God. I can hold it in my hand, can't I? I? I can hold it. I can hold it. I can weigh it. When it's new, I can smell a, a new book. I can kiss it. The word of God. I can take it with me. I can get a small edition and slip it in my pocket. It is exactly as God intended it to be written. Jesus says, to the jots and tittles. Remember what Wesley said one day about this book. Exultant as he said it. He said, I'm a creature of a day. I'm a spirit come from God and returning to God. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. God himself has condescended to teach me that way. He has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. Let me be a man of one book. And that was Paul too. And that was Timothy And that was every man of God who served God in the last 2,000 years. I want us to see the reality of this book. That it's the word of God. And that we should pause and read these great written words of the Apostle Paul. And realize that in the whole realm of human literature, we can't find letters that are remotely comparable to those of Paul and Peter and 
and James and Jude and John. I'm saying that in themselves, the Gospels and the letters, as extant realities, these words are miracles. That I'm holding in my hand something that is absolutely unique. I have something that's miraculous in its independence of thought, in the compellingness of what it has to say, how it draws me to listen to it in its utter and invincible confidence that it has something to say to every one of you here this morning. That our lives can be enriched and transformed by what it has to say. Sometimes in moments of doubt, our minds must rest in this. I have the Bible. I have this great intrusion, a book that comes from another world where I can read the unique utterances of the Son of God and the inspired apostles. Now, I've read much of human literature. When I was a a boy in junior school, I lived 100 yards away from the Carnegie Library. And I read the children's department dry. And then I studied English up to the level of uh, entrance to university. And I've, you know, I've read Chaucer and Shakespeare and Dickens and Keats and Wordsworth and Tennyson. And, oh, my friends, here is something. Here is something that is radically different. Here is something that is discontinuous, something splendid. Here are words that know me. Here are words that describe me. Here are words that energize me to improve and elevate me and comfort me and rebuke me and keep me going day by day that are unsurpassable in their grandeur that are uninventable in their sheer originality. And there are times I say that if there were no God, I worship the God who wrote the Bible. Paul says, men can bind me. I'm chained to this guy. But they can't do that to the word of God. It is not chained. They can stop us. But there is no way that they can stop God's truth. Luther says, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Why is it that no one can chain the word of God? Uh, We would say, well, firstly, of course, because it's truth. And uh, one quality of truth is that it endures. What was true 2,000 years ago, 100 years ago, is true today, and it will be true forever and ever. It is truth. And every attempt to silence it fails. If there's persecution, it goes underground. It lives in the hearts of those who've received it. Secretly, they speak to one another. They share it with one another. They explain it. They burned the body of uh, John Wycliffe, one of the first translators of the Bible into English, they burnt his body and then they scattered the ashes 
into the river. And the river took the ashes into the sea, and the sea spread it round the nations of the world. And today everywhere in the world there are congregations like us meeting around the word of God. We sing glory, glory, hallelujah, his truth goes marching on. God's truth abideth still. And then, you can't chain the word of God because it is spirit as well as truth. And there are no fetters, there are no handcuffs, uh, there are no ropes that can chain spirit. You cannot chain a rainbow. And so you cannot chain the word of God. And then thirdly, his word is alive and powerful. It's more powerful than any force on earth or in hell. They're all helpless in comparison to the word of God. It was by the word of God. The heavens were made. God said, let there be. And there was light. From one end of the cosmos to the next, it was flooded with light when God spoke his word. And the light couldn't refuse. The light said, well, I'm not going to be. The light couldn't say that. If God said, let there be, I don't want to be. You've got no choice in the matter. Let there be light. And there was light. The universe is powerful, isn't it? But how much more powerful must the word be that created the universe? And again, uh, the word of God can't be changed because it is an irresistible force. It is omnipotence, enlightening and educating and sanctifying a company of people more than any man can number. That is the word of God. And so 3,000 men, curious by certain signs and sounds in Jerusalem on the Feast of Pentecost, heard a young man, a fisherman from Galilee with a Galilean accent, getting up on a stone and starting to preach to them. And 3,000 of them were converted. That is, they repented of what they had done and they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. They were unable to resist the power of the word of God that was preached to them on that occasion. Um, Charles Wesley describes their experience like this. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. The word of God does that. And everyone who is converted who is here this morning, that is exactly what happened. The word of God came. You heard You were curious. You were asking questions about it. You were drawn to it. You wanted to know more and more and more. The word did it, Luther said, explaining the Reformation. And it explains your Reformation too. So you can't chain the word of God, he says. Thirdly, since this is so, then this is how we must endure too. And so the implications of his suffering... But the word of God, lingering, surviving, means that we are called to endure. We have a summons from God to go on and on and on in our lives. 
So he says, verse 10, therefore, I endure everything. He is stirring up Timothy's will to endure. Go on, Timothy. Don't stop, Timothy. Take a stand, Timothy. That is the difference between failure and success. I endure everything, and so must you, Paul says. Endure it. I know it's tough, but endure it. Here's this immensely logical and wise man whose life was liberated by the word of God that he heard on the Damascus Road. The life of this cruel and prejudiced inquisitor general was saved through meeting Jesus. And Paul was changed. He was changed beyond human understanding. There has never been a greater change in anyone than the change that took place in Paul's life when Jesus Christ met him and spoke to him on the Damascus Road. He was now a new man. He became a man who, from that time forward, gravitated to helping and loving other people. That's the prime mark of grace. That we love one another. That we love our neighbors as ourselves. That's what conversion does. I'll give you an illustration of that from the life of the Apostle Paul. He was um, on a boat, a little boat, being taken to prison in Rome. He was sailing in winter across the Mediterranean, across the Aegean. A huge storm called the Euroclidon, it came and it threatened the ship. They had to throw everything overboard to lighten it. And then they heard the sound of waves beating on rocks and they thought they were done for. But Paul had received assurance from God that not one of them would perish, that they would all get ashore. Uh, And the uh, sailors saw a a cove, a beach, and with the last of their strength, they headed the ship for that beach, and it grounded on the island of Malta on that beach. And they all got ashore, every one of them. Paul picked himself up. Do you know what he did? He started to gather driftwood. He started to make a bonfire in order that uh, the shivering, wet passengers and crew uh, would not perish of uh, hypothermia. That was his mindset. Not to think of himself and lick his wounds and shiver there, but immediately, I must love my shivering neighbor like my shivering self. Paul pressed on. Paul endured. He began. And he went on, caring for others, thinking of others. That's the hallmark of everyone who knows the power of the word of God in their lives. They keep going. That's the essential mark of all who go to glory. They endure to the end, and so they are saved. Now, that doesn't mean that we live sinlessly to the end. It doesn't mean that. We fall every day. 
And every day we get up, and sometimes we get up seven times in a day, and we say, I'm sorry, Lord, there, there I am. I've let you down again. Forgive me. We appropriate Jesus Christ's mercy and goodness to us. Every day. We go on. We go on. It was a very uh, simple man who came from overseas to the Bible College of Wales in Swansea. And he came to a meeting with Geraint Fielder, a friend of mine. And uh, um, they were having tea together afterwards and various kind things were said. And he said, I've written a hymn. Can I say it to you? And they said, oh, yes, let's hear you. So he said, go on, go on, go on, go on. Go on, go on, on, on. Go on, go on, go on, go on, go on, go on, on, on. And they all clapped and appreciated what he had said. This hymn about enduring, about going on. Timothy, go on. Alfred Place, go on. How much did Paul endure? He endured, he says, everything. He's not boasting to Timothy when he says this. He's stating a fact. And so we read this morning. He endured much hard work and prison and floggings and exposure to death again and again. He endured 40 lashes five times. Stoning three shipwrecks, a night and day in the open sea, being constantly on the move, having no place to call his home, in danger from swollen rivers, from bandits, from his own countrymen, frequent sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, cold, nakedness, and the mental and spiritual concern for all the churches. I endure all things, he says. So you can endure, can't you? Uh, A little family squabble, uh, some minor differences of opinion in the church that we will all have forgotten about in a year or two, an inadequate sermon, a feeling that my gifts are not, not recognized as they should be, Paul endured all things, and he tells us why. He says, for the sake of the elect. A people God knew and loved before the foundation of the world. And he gave them to his son, Jesus Christ, to save and, and keep. That they should be holy and blameless before him in the great day. Imagine if God hadn't elected anyone. Imagine what? We are dead in trespasses and sins. There would be no one who would have been a Christian if God hadn't chosen a company of people more than anyone can number like the sands on the seashore. Chose and chose and gave them all to Jesus. Jesus accepted them all. He bore the guilt of all of them in his own body on the tree. And he didn't do it by choosing the smart people the beautiful people of Aberystwyth, the rich people, the PhDs of Aberystwyth, 
the talented ones of Aberystwyth. He didn't. He chose nobodies like us. Sinners like ourselves. He chose them and saved them. And he gave them to Christ to be his bride, his eternal possession. And because then they are precious to God, they are precious to us, the people of God, I told you. Ted Donnelly accompanied one of his elders to the local hospital in Belfast to, uh, to visit uh, his wife. His wife was uh, in her last weeks of cancer. And they went into this uh, four-bed ward together and, uh, with Ted. And there she was. And he said to Ted, look at her. Isn't she beautiful? She was emaciated and skeletal and yellow-skinned. But in his eyes, she was the girl he married all those years ago. And he loved her then as he loved her at the beginning. Isn't she beautiful? God sees us today and he sees us in Christ. Jesus Christ, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And he sees us in him and he loves us in him. And we must see one another in him. And love one another as God loves us. And the last thing here we see is uh, this pastor's determination that each one should reach glory. Um, He sets before Paul, then he sets before Timothy the goal of our preaching and our letter writing and our counseling. Verse 10, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory that they may obtain this salvation he's speaking of not of um, the, the salvation from the the penalty now of sin or the power of sin but from the very presence of sin salvation consummated salvation completed uh, it's just beginning now isn't it but oh it will be it will be consummated. When we see him, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is in that day. We will obtain it, that salvation. There's salvation in Jesus Christ. I want you all to know that. I want you to go away then this morning with that that, um, sentence written on your hearts. I want you to have this confidence, this certainty. There is salvation, and it is in Christ Jesus. There is this reality, like this book is a reality, and this pulpit is a reality, and this light is a reality, and you are real people. This salvation in Jesus Christ is the greatest reality of all. We need to be saved from our ignorance. This salvation does it. The ignorance, where did this world come from? What's the purpose of life? Why am I here? How should I live? What's the chief end of man? Who is God? What happens at death? This salvation tells you about it. This salvation, it 
It delivers us from the guilt of our sin, from our shame and our blame, for our follies. The people we've hurt, don't you lie awake at, in bed at night sometimes and think of people that you've hurt and you wonder where they are today and how is it with them? The Lord Jesus' salvation saves us from the guilt of our sin, from our ignorance, from our guilt. It saves us from the power that sin has over us. From now on, he'll always be with us and he'll be working everything together for our good. He's put everything under an obligation. If it touches us in in any way at all, it's got to work for our good and the good he defines as likeness to Jesus Christ. Conformity to our Savior's image. That is the salvation which you can obtain. It's an obtainable salvation. And so uh, you will be people who will say, Lord, give it to me. You know, people want to obtain so many things. They want to obtain the lottery number that will make them millionaires. They want to obtain driving licenses. They want to obtain a good degree at the university. My friends, the greatest thing in life for you to obtain is the salvation that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Give him no rest until you've obtained it. Say to him now in your heart, give that salvation to me. Dear Savior, give it to me. You've given it to other people in this congregation. Many of them, I I like them, I admire them. Oh, that I could have it too. That you could obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. And so Paul suffered all things and he did it for the elect that they might might obtain it. My friends, what uh, a wonderful example there is here then of being courageous and patient and going on, go on, go on, go on, go on, on, on in the Christian life. All of you, all of you. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, bless your word to us now, we pray. and Oh, rebuke us kindly and lovingly Charge us, exhort us, strengthen us, keep us going, Lord, prone not to go on, not to endure, Lord, we feel it, prone to leave the God we love. Take our hearts, seal our hearts, give us the grace of endurance that was purchased at such a price, Jesus' own blood, that that might be our privilege now and all the years to come. We ask it in the Saviour's name. Amen.